All right, welcome back to Building a Fighter. My name is Dr. Austin Shane, sports chiropractor in Scottsdale, Arizona. With me, as always, I have Alex Friedman, badass strength coach in Denver, Colorado. Today, we're going to further our anatomical approach to training series and talk about one of the most, if not the most complex joints and joint complexes in the entire body, the shoulder. So we'll start with some training. Alex, what's some stuff that we could look at with the shoulder and what are some key elements of shoulder training. Yeah. I mean, when I look at the shoulder, I think of the shoulder and the hip. I mean, those are your, your engines of movement, right? That's where uh, any type of um, appendage or any type of limb movement originates is from the shoulder or the hip. And so for the upper body it's with the shoulder and I break it down and do a, a couple of different um, planes of movement, a couple of different areas that I'm sure to hit with whatever population that I'm working with. But especially in fighting, where you are looking at pushing and pulling both horizontally, vertically, everything in between. We're looking at a mobile scapula and a, and a stable scapula as well. But training those and ticking those boxes within the shoulder specifically, um, and especially tying it into more of our whole body movements. We want to make sure it's moving. The scapula specifically is moving well. There's a lot of strength in that, and we're not comp uh, compensating through poor movement patterns for a lack of motor learning, a lack of knowledge, or a lack of strength. Well, and when you look at the shoulder blade, like a lot of times – like Alex is saying, like we, we don't necessarily look at the um, shoulder blade movement, right? But we want our shoulder blade to move freely. <laughs> if we lock it in and think about throwing a punch with a locked in shoulder blade, you're going to look like a rock'em sock'em robot. That's just going straight up and straight down and just extending the arm and then flexing the shoulder. Like that's, that's not the goal. We're trying to look slingy and look free flowing when we throw like we, this is actually, we're filming this right after the Max Holloway, Calvin Cater fight. Max is one of the prettiest puncher and Calvin, actually. They're two of the prettiest punchers you can see their shoulder mechanics. Like I just, I'm in awe every time I watch both of them fight. So it's awesome to see them both same fight. Uh, but it, you're, you're in awe when you see the, the upward rotation, the, the uh, translation, the protraction to reach, turn over that punch and then allow you to come back. And these are all qualities that you can train around, whether it be with our mobility or whether that be with our strength and conditioning, or guess what? You can do both at the same time if you're skilled, but focusing on that scapular movement is going to high, pay high dividends in your actual MMA training and MMA uh, fights. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's one of the things that I think about most when we're training a shoulder bird, thinking about these anatomical approaches, um, is how is this actually going to look when we're in the octagon or when we're in a, a fighter MMA bout, when I think about that free and fluid type of motion, I want somebody to be able to have that, um, have that competency before they get into that um, fight. So they're not thinking about it and they're not lessening their performance because of their unawareness of that. So we're going to train it and get it strong. Yes, but not train it in a sense to get a rigid or stiff. We're going to train it so we can gain an understanding and see what this uh, um, enlarged range of motion, what this more fluid approach and strengthening approach can get us. So that again, it's, it's beneficial in the actual fight and it's worth spending time on, in our training. Well, this is where uh, I put up a post recently, like the, the seesaw row, like this is where the seesaw row can be implemented as well. Like as you go down, you need, I feel like we talk about it all the time, but like we're doing anatomical approach to shoulder, but you also need the spine to move, be mobile. And you need the GH joint, you need the neck to be mobile. So you rotate through the T spine. You can protract as you're going out 
on the bottom. And then as you retract or you can start with retraction, use the lat, come up and you're just seesawing back and forth, simulating that thoracic rotation, simulating that scapular mobility, and as well as simulating our engagement of the posterior chain and the lats. So like there's, there's these different things that you can do in the training room that'll pay dividends where like, instead of just doing a bent over row, which is a great exercise. And I love bent over rows, but adding in instead a seesaw row, because that may, that adds in the sling component that adds in the shoulder blade component as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I like the unilateral um, emphasis as well, but I always think about, um, and again, with the MMA population, I'm not as big a fan with bench pressing, right. But we have our horizontal pushes and pulls, which are our rows and our bench press or, or something like that. And that's great for a base level of general strength, but then we can get into a lot of different uh, modalities when we start to go vertical and go overhead with our overhead pressing, our pull-ups or overhead pulling, um, all with the shoulder. And then we get even more specific into some med ball type of work or into some landmine type of overhead pressing and, uh, even rowing with the landmine. Cause that's more unilateral that's a little more grounded so there's that spectrum that i always talk about that's the spectrum from general specific that spectrum from loading and uh high resistance to the more velocity based punching or power type of movement and we just train ourselves up and down that continuum within those different ranges of motion um while also keeping a tabs on how the shoulder blades move in, whether we're, you know, elevating and shrugging our shoulders into our presses all the time, which is not the best approach or where we're elevating and shrugging into our rows or our pull-ups, which is again, not the best approach. So how is that shoulder blade moving through our motion? And can we teach it with that more resistance and general approach? And then can we apply it into the more power and specific approach later on? I think that's the, that's the journey that you're on specifically with the shoulder. And bringing up something that I love to talk about is joint centration. So with the shoulder, there's, there's obvious, it's a complex of joints, right? We're not just talking, like we talked about, we're not just talking about the GH joint. We're also talking about, you got an AC joint in there. You got your, uh, your scapulothoracic joint, which is your, how your shoulder blade moves on your spine or on your rib cage. Mm-hmm. Um, and then scapulocostal technically is the joint name. But so when we look at these different things, we want as much surface area as possible between my shoulder blade and my ribs. If I am upwardly rotated, think about somebody in a boxing guard or we have our hands up shrugging our shoulders that decentrates my scaps. So I'm going to argue about that later when I get it, like, I'm going to talk about the effects of this on the healthcare side later, but you got to think from a power development side that if I don't have maximal surface area and I don't have my shoulder blade in the position that functionally it should be in, I'm not able to get maximal contraction rates or maximal, maximal power, maximal strength, maximal velocity, anything you want to do because you can't properly engage the shoulder the way it should be created, right? So that's where our training of the centration, the centration model and keeping the shoulder blade where we want it and actually making it move the way that it should, that gliding. Like when you look at a pretty shoulder blade, you know, it's moving well, where it looks like it's gliding along the the rib cage. We can add that in. And that's something that Alex hit the nail on the head. I like my landmine presses with that. The way that the landmine locks you into that almost like a set pre predisposed Uh, range of motion. So it's not as much of a degree of freedom as like a dumbbell or a kettlebell, but you still get a little bit more degree of freedom than with a barbell, a regular barbell push. It 
it allows you to get that sweet J curve, if you will, of the GH joint. And that also forces us to get that nice shoulder blade movement where it's sweeping across and upwardly rotating as you go out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another one I think about is the push up all the time um, because push ups are such a bastardized movement, man. Push ups. Well, get... They're so bad. I literally cringe when I see people doing push ups half the time. Right. And, and it's just a, a, I think, I mean, it's honestly a lack of awareness and a massive popularity with the push up exercise. But, you know, lack of coaching. Yeah. God, you're not getting, but, you know, push ups are not just filler movements to put in there and, and accumulate volume and whatever else um, to let our core slip or anything. Push ups are actually a very challenging movement should we choose to perform them with some specific intent and with some integrity. Um, Whenever I'm coaching a push-up, I'm making sure that the athletes are kind of corkscrewing their hands on the ground, which enables us to lock in the shoulder blades. And then the shoulder blades continue to move as we um, come down closer to the floor. And then they kind of outwardly rotate and elevate a little bit as we come up. We want the shoulder blade to move and not just turn it into a locked shoulder position, tricep extension as of a push-up. So keeping the core engaged as well, that's hard when we're depressing our shoulder blades because – the kind of a common default or a common fault is to start extending through the lower um, lumbar spine when we do that, but getting it all together in the push up and actually having a free moving shoulder without a lot of shoulder blade winging is going to be a good push up and it may be beneficial as opposed to the hundred push ups that you hit on your chest day, <laughs> which is not beneficial. And uh, just talking about push ups, one thing that I, my favorite cue for push ups is look at the hand placement too. If they are rocking to the outside of their hand, you know immediately that their shoulder blade isn't going to be centrated. So if you are on your, like your pisiform is the bone or the outside of the bottom of your hand, and you're not engaging or pushing through your index finger, the base of your index finger, then you can't activate all the shoulder musculature. They've done EMG studies, service EMG studies on looking at muscle activation of the shoulder during the pushup. And if you actually have a flattened hand and you have a wide base, that increases shoulder activation and forces you to stabilize your rotator cuff as well as it centrates the shoulder blade on the rib cage a little bit better. So that's an easy cue you can throw in if if you are, say, a, a head coach in Alaska and you got to do the strength and you're doing strength mixed with skill work and you don't have access to a strength coach, that's one fantastic cue that you could look at. And if they're rocking the outside of their hands, just say, hey, index finger down and boom, that's immediately is going to increase their shoulder activation and actually shoulder health as well. Yeah. And then push up for me too, is a huge tell on, um, unilateral asymmetries. You know, you can see how guys move into their push up a lot more, you know, and for some guys, it's super blatant that they tilt to one side, super elevate and shrug. And then they, they're like, Whoa, I did a push up like that. It's like, yes, you did. <laughs> Have you hurt your shoulder before? You know? Yeah. And so that's a, that's a good little screen or good check uh, mid-workout for it when we're doing the push-up. But um, again, shoulder blades should be moving and they, there's a time and place to lock them into place. And I'm thinking about a deadlift or um, some other type of heavily loaded movement where the shoulder movement and the shoulder strengthening is not specifically the main goal. But if our goal is to train the shoulder and to get it strong enough or strong as possible and to create a lot of power, we need a free-flowing joint with that, that scapular and, and thoracic junction. Question, do we do shrugs as combat athletes? No, no, we do not need to do shrugs. Good fucking answer. 
but but I but uh, the bigger my traps are and the stronger my neck is, I don't get a concussion, right? I don't get me started on that. <laughs> that's a that's, whole that's its own separate podcast. That's that's a rant that I I can't afford to have in this podcast. Right, I know, and I mean <laughs> it goes with anything we talk about. You know, feeding a flame or, or trying to you know douse it, and we don't need to feed that flame of um, elevation and anterior rotation and tightness. Um, with our MMA fighters. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things. And I, I say it jokingly, but I, I see it all the time with fighters is, is they want to do shrugs. They want to get the shoulder, the shoulder tension. They want to do all these different things that are, they think is helping. And then they get a headache in a coat hanger distribution that wraps around and it's a splitting headache and they can't go to practice the next day after they do a thousand shrugs. Well, guess what? Mm-hmm. One of the most, ref- one of the most common headaches comes from your upper traps. What are you working when you're shrugging? You are overloading your upper traps. It makes a lot of sense that that referral pattern activates after you do a thousand shrugs. So for somebody that's already struck, stuck in a shrug in striking practice, it doesn't make sense to shrug more. Yeah. <laughs> Let's replace some of that with some low trap activation and some maybe like TRXTs with the shoulders um, depressed and, and different things that, that we can actually work into a healthy range of motion with the shoulder, not just the meathead range of motion. Dude, I love, uh, this is where the shoulders, where I bring out a lot of the functional range stuff. Like mm-hmm. pro, like prone swimmers, I'm a huge fan of their prone swimmers and their infinity series that they do. Mm-hmm. Um, and adding those in for just total shoulder mobility and, and just upper limb in general. Cause that if you mm-hmm. do the infinity, it adds in the elbow and the wrists and two. Um, but focusing on trying to keep the shoulder set, the shoulder blade centrated as we go through your GH movement, your actual shoulder movement, that swimmer. And then you sit on up into your knees and then you lock your shoulder. So hand behind your back, pushing your hand into your back, you lock your shoulder joint in place. And now you can free flow your scap and your shoulder blade as much as possible and go through all of those ranges of motion. So I think functional range and functional range conditioning specifically does a really, really good job of their mobility for the shoulder and it's easily implementable. So that's a good YouTube after, after you listen to this to throw into your team, throw into your own training, throw into your rehab. If you're a uh, healthcare worker, that's going to make a big bang for your buck with any sort of striking athlete. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, get, the, get into that, those ranges of motions and more frequently we can work into that good range of motion with the shoulder and actually expand. And that, that just opens up different training avenues and opens up more modalities that we can take advantage of. We were talking before the podcast about um, athletes doing snatches, the Olympic weightlifting movement of a snatch. And, you know, a lot of athletes that I have, especially some of the MMA guys, we're not going to snatch because they don't have the prerequisite <laughs> shoulder mobility, like, or, or stability or the spine, or the spine mobility. Yeah. Like, the T-spine is locked up too. Her. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, it, it's worthwhile pursuit. Should those type of movements be uh, important into your uh, training needs, but it's a worthwhile pursuit because it's going to increase performance in general. So you can almost kill two birds with one stone when we're working on shoulder mobility and different joint um, centration type of movements in that type of realm. Well, and, so something I want to talk about is the shoulder is a joint that it's extremely important to have communication. If there's a shoulder injury to have communication between all parties involved with this athlete, not that other joints aren't that like, aren't that isn't as important. Right. But the shoulder in general, you need to have everybody on board with what the game plan is. Otherwise the injury is going to prolong a lot of the times, whether it's an AC, like AC separation, AC sprain, GH, 
problem, labral tear, uh, whatever it may, there's a plethora of different, I know five point word. I saw you look at me like that, but a plethora of different things that you can do to the shoulder as far as from a injury standpoint. So we need to get everybody on board because all of these different things that you can injure are going to limit you in a different way. And if the strength coach doesn't understand what the healthcare person is saying, or for the most part, it's not that they don't understand what my honest opinion is most of the time, the healthcare worker absolutely fucking sucks at explaining it to everybody else. And they think that they're above everybody, which is a huge no, no, they, they don't talk to people like people. They talk to people like objects, but Mm -hmm. like you need, this is where the healthcare person needs to take the, take control of the situation. You need to call the strength coach and and talk to them about what's going on. You need to call the skill coach and need to talk to all of the skill coaches and tell them what's go- what, what is actually happening. If it's an AC, if it's an AC sprain, you need to tell them that direct trauma to that area isn't okay. They should not be grappling for at least a couple of weeks. If they have an AC sprain, that's dumb. That's going to further irritate it. It's going to send an inflammation cascade that that athlete isn't able to handle. It's going to keep them out for double the amount of time. If you re-injure that, that's, that's stupid, but all of that could have been avoided in this case, if me as the healthcare person was able to talk to Santino as the head coach at Fight Ready and tell him what's going on. So like for the most part, we preach communication here and being an open book to everybody, but the shoulder in general, just because of all of the options that could be occurring and all the different intricacies of the injury, you need to be an open book with everybody else on this athlete's team in order to give the athlete the best likelihood for success and the best recovery from this injury. Because these, these other people don't know what's going to re-injure this. They're either going to tell them to not do anything or you're fine, suck it up. And you have to be the person in the middle that tells, that tells them that, look, they can do X, Y, and Z, but they, they shouldn't do Q. No, and I'm a hundred percent on board of being the strength conditioning coach. That's either had really good rapport with the, the healthcare practitioner or not had any rapport at all. Um, if I'm not getting any word and, and you know, an, an athlete is telling me about an injury they had or a, complaining of the pain that they've been suffering for weeks or whatever, you know, I'm more likely to just avoid that area in general. When, if I knew some of the specifics of the injury or some of the specifics of the um, situation, I could do something productive. Like I, I could still work on some type of mobility, stability, or building up specific type of strength um, with that athlete. But if I know nothing, you know, I'm do no harm. I'm going completely away from that joint, which is a missed opportunity. Um, or the other thing that happens is the athlete doesn't communicate at all either. And we get doing a movement and they're like, man, that really hurts. And it's like, oh, so we, we shouldn't have been doing that ever at all. Like, you know, <laughs> so it's like just... Yeah. Getting that into the forefront allows the whole team to operate on a higher level and allows for a return to a return to play, a return to performance protocol just to go a lot smoother and go a lot faster. Yeah. No, it's it's when all of the wheels are oiled, it's a lot smoother of a movement. And all that comes think about the oil as your communication, as your words. And that that's what sets the tone. So moving into a little bit of healthcare. Because, you know, I, I want to talk about all that crazy trap shit you guys do. <laughs> um, talking about the upper traps and in particular. So this is something that I've I've struggled with. I say the beginning. I've only been in practice for a year and a half. But the beginning, like the very early beginning of working with the fighters, I'm like, well, why are they shrugging? That doesn't make sense. That's that's going to hurt them, da, 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 da. But I've come around on that a little bit to there's a time and a place for everything. You can't be black and white. 
right? So I talked to a lot of, when I was in Portland and I was finishing up school, everybody, my clinician that I was with for my first clinic rotation ever, he's like talking shit about neck bridges with wrestlers. And don't get me wrong. I'm not a, like, we've talked about this. I'm not a huge fan of neck bridges, but there's a time and a place. If somebody has been a wrestler since they were six and they've adapted, their tissue has adapted to this and they don't have any previous injuries to the neck. Neck bridges aren't the worst thing. Are they dumb? Yes. Is there other things you can do? Yes. But it's not going to further. It's that athletes aren't fragile. <laughs> Amen. Like, Amen. Like uh, every, sometimes they think they are. And like sometimes in their own head, they feel fragile. But athletes are robust. They're strong and they're not fragile. So doing one neck bridge isn't going to hurt them. Same thing with holding a guard and keeping your traps shrugged up when you're boxing, right? Is it going to decrease the centration of the scap? Yes, it is. But do the risks actually over are, are the risks worth it? So are the risks of upper trap pain or the risks of tension are the risks of decreased spine mobility? Are they worth it for the performance benefit? And I would say for the most part, yes. If you're in a striking based sport, because you need to be able to hold a guard. If you're not able to keep your traps up like that, that decreases your roll ability. Your decreases your ability to roll with punches, decreases your ability to shield punches. There's all these different performance advantages that come from this really shitty, poorly placed shoulder blade position. So it's one of those things that like we talk about all the time, high performance isn't healthy. This is one of those things. Yep. Keeping your shoulders shrugged up for 25 minutes straight isn't health, but does it save you from getting knocked out? I would, ar- I would argue that yes, in some instances, it does save you from getting knocked out. And I will take not getting knocked out over a trap headache any day of the week. Yeah. And I think that's par- part of our role as strength conditioning coach or healthcare professionals is, is to moderate that stretch and know when and where and the correct dosage for it. Right. Like exactly. Exactly. So that's our job. And, and I mean, not exclusively our job, but part of our job to figure out like, okay, we can do shrugs right now and, and we can hold this endurance or are they getting enough of that and practicing their sports skill because they're going to do it there regardless, you know? And that's what I, what I think about when I'm making modifications or when I'm creating programs, it's like, are these, are, are these stress buckets already full and do I need to add to them? You know, maybe a specific athlete, I do need to add to that. And we do need to program shrugs and, and different stabilize, stabilization patterns into their shoulders. But this other guy who is built like a brick shit house and has no problem shrugging all the time, no. he might need some, a different re- piece of the recipe. So that's where you as a coach and a healthcare practitioner sprinkle it in and, and figure out what's the best recipe for each specific athlete to get to their, their high performance. Well, and talking about the same situation as a healthcare practitioner, I, you just need to know that you're going to, I mean, somebody that has a history of shoulder pain has a history of trap issues has a history of upper, like CT junction, the cervical thoracic spine, like that junctional area immobility. That means you're just going to have to treat that when they come in. Like it's a, it's not something you're going to fix until they're on the back, the back leg of their career. And they are going from high level athlete to regular person. You're not going to fix that while they're a fighter. Cause this is what they need to do to survive. This is what they need to do to eat. <laughs> like, so you just need to know that, understand that, and then treat the symptoms as they arise, knowing that this isn't going to, this isn't going to change 
whether you think like this is where you got to set your own ego aside and whether you think, you know, more than the coaches or not, you think you have this fancy healthcare degree and Mm -hmm. you're a doctor, da, 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 da. I've been there. I thought that. And then you go and have a talk with the coaches and you realize that this is just survival. This is part of what makes them, this is part of what makes them an elite fighter. So Mm -hmm. you got to roll with the punches. Being an elite fighter, you get punched in the face all day. Let's see what it did. Their roll with the punches. I thought it was clever. He didn't laugh. <laughs> yeah, real uh, quick. That's a real quick tongue on you. <laughs> uh, but you got to be able to understand what's going on. You got to be able to understand all of these different situations. And it's extremely important for the shoulder in general because of the different aspects of the shoulder. So another thing that I hear a lot is, oh, my, my shoulder clicks. My shoulder clicks. They have this like sometimes painful click. Well, guess what? This is where shoulder centration comes into play because everybody, your shoulder typically is going to click from your AC joint or your labrum. Those are two. Okay. If it's the AC joint, I would argue, and this is, this is my personal experience. This is not any sort of, there's no research study done on this. It's too narrow of a thought, I guess, spectrum, but I would argue that painful AC clicking without a traumatic onset are 90% of the time going to be caused from forcing you to keep that shoulder shrug because of what it does. So think about what the AC joint is. Your scapula, when it's upwardly rotated, guess what? The scapula or the shoulder blade, that AC joint, that little like step off that a lot of fighters have, that's part of your shoulder blade. So when you shrug up, that's going to roll forward. And then when you try to turn over your punch, there's a tendon, your, your supraspinatus tendon goes underneath that junction. That's that painful snap that you're feeling. So this is where if you are getting a painful snap and it's getting in the way of practice as a healthcare provider, this is where you do get to fix it. This is where you get to educate the coach. And this is where you get to talk one-on-one with the coaches and be like, look, there's a, this is the reason why maybe this person is in this shrug for too long in practice. It doesn't mean they can't do it in a fight, but maybe during practice, you should try to avoid this. You should try to modify their shrug, they should mod- try to modify the guard and have them do different drilling. Because one, I'm not a huge Connor fan, but one thing Connor does really well, if you watch him, is he, while, while he has like kind of almost like a karate background, he's got the hands low, he's bouncing in and out, all these different things. Notice how, where his shoulder blades are. His shoulder blades, part of the reason why he gets that whip, that whip effect, and Shug does it really well too. Both of them have very similar striking styles is he keeps his shoulder centrated. It's not, it's not crazy. It's, it's not rocket science. He keeps his traps down and that extra little whip is all from scapular movement that allows him that extra degree of range. And so what, what Connor does well is that, but guess what? Now you can't teach a little muscle hamster to do what Connor does. <laughs> I would say that that approach is not the Tito Ortiz approach. Exactly. He, he's a brick house there and he's going to just take it. Right. I, I can't, can. I can't train like talking about two, two one thirty fivers on our team. We got Tommy who is six foot one thirty five, and we have Hunter who is five, eight, five, seven ish one thirty five. I can't teach both of them to strike the same. That's, that's yeah. dumb. And right. Tommy who ironically enough is one of Shug's best friends strikes very kind of similarly to him. He mm-hmm. bounces in and out. He has that same little waggle and he can use his scapula a little bit more. Hunter is a little bit more plot and trot. Obviously he's got his kicks. That's what he's known for is really, really good leg kicks. Um, but he's a plot and trot and he keeps, his, he keeps his guard a little bit more because he rolls with stuff, rolls with punches, and then comes back with a nice hook or with a body shot. So that's where you, again, going another step deeper 
is you need to know the athlete you're working with too. So if you have a painful click in somebody like Hunter, they're going to do that in a fight no matter what. If you're working with a little muscle hamster and they have a painful click in the AC joint when they when they turn over their punch, they're going to do that thing because that's what the thing that is going to give them success. So with that, you need to manage symptoms. You need to educate them, but do not get in their head that they should not be in their traps because that's where skill coaches, me being one, being a wrestling coach and, see, and having to fucking deal with other healthcare people. <laughs> as soon as you overstep your bounds and me as a healthcare provider, tell that athlete you shouldn't be doing this in your fight. That's when you butt heads with the skill coach. Yeah. Immediately you need to go to the skill coach and be like, this is what's causing him pain. And then most time, most of the time, the skill coach will educate you saying, this is what he does to be successful in his sport. This is how he feeds his family. Do not get in his head and fuck with his psychology mm-hmm. by telling him that he should never do this again. Well, it's a, it's a case of optimal loading, right? Because then it's not, it's not all or nothing. It's not like this thing is causing you pain. You need to stop doing it and forfeit your performance advantage from it. It's where you need to create a plan and a program to balance out your symptoms and balance out your performance. Like those are, are two things that people have to collaborate to do. Not exactly. one person overtakes the other. And so I think, again, knowing your role and I mean, this for me goes all the way back to uh, Mike Stone and creating a performance team around an athlete or around of around a team of athletes, the performance team and have it led or have it constantly in communication. And I think that's where things should be going. And that's part of what we're trying to build is building a fighter, right? Is a, a performance team and approach to where everyone has some tor- type of cross training and knowledge in everybody else's respective discipline so that you can have the common language and the common conversation of how can we best serve this athlete and this individual, not just how can I push my agenda of eliminating pain or my agenda of only winning this go. So that's how can you find that, that bridge and that um, collaborative approach? Hell yeah. And then moving on to another, another shoulder injury that I want to talk about a lot is stingers, 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 stingers. What, what are they? What happens? How can you help them? All these different things. So stingers are extremely common with our combat sports. The thing is the stinger is typically not coming from the shoulder, even though you're feeling the symptoms there. Most of my guys, when they get a stinger, they feel it actually through like right at the border of the upper trap going toward like with left scap upper trap, and then going towards the GH joint, the glenohumeral joint or the shoulder joint that you think about if if you don't know anatomy so for the most part when you get a stinger it's most likely going to come from either a traction injury on your brachial plexus or your nervous system starting at the neck going all the way down or it's from a disc herniation in the neck that's why as a clinician you always want to start at the neck and work your way out okay because it's it the neck the neck tests are quick easy and if you fix it from the neck you look like you look like Jesus. <laughs> You're like, you didn't even touch my shoulder and all the pain's gone. I know people, like, people be hanging around for the next, <laughs> next day and a half thinking, man, my shoulder, my neck's still tight. And then it all of a sudden goes away and you are like, wow, yeah, <laughs> where's the wine? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, stingers in general, there's two approaches that I like to personally take. One is going to be what's called a McKenzie or an MDT approach, mechanical diagnosis and therapy. The other one is going to be a neurodynamics approach. And that's coming out of, there's a bunch of different people that teach it. I know Butler has a good book on it. He was the first, um, but I really like Michael Shacklock's work in out of Australia. He's a wizard dude is he, he uh, he's, I don't know how other than that, how to describe him. He's a wizard. Like I've taken a seminar and it, I've taken a seminar, I've read his books and I don't, <laughs> I still don't know a 
15th about what this man knows about neurodynamics, but you got to think that the nerves in general, one of the major reasons why stingers occur is that the nerves either get over tensioned. So they stretch too far or there's a hypoxic state, which means that you're not able to get, so you're that you're not able to get blood flow to that area. And you got to think nerves also need nutrients. Nerves also move like muscles and like everything else, they're fluid in the body. So if you're not able to move and groove and get nutrients and get airflow and get oxygen to the tissue, it's going to get irritated. And that's when you get that stabbing radiating pain that goes from your neck down to your trap, or maybe you just feel it in the shoulder or maybe a very common place to feel this type of neurologic injury is right on the medial border of your scap. So right between your shoulder blade and the the mid back or your thoracic spine, you feel it right in that like little bump. It feels like it's a big knot. Typically that's from a stinger. Ironically enough, that didn't even happen close to that area. So how we fix it. You can do chin retractions are always, 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 always one of my first, first go-tos. Um, that's, that's one of those things like it's dumb to not try it. (laughs) Like it works, it works with so many things. It's dumb to not try it. Um, and for the most part, if it's a central issue, so spine or disc issue, that's going to assist with clearing it up. And it's not just chin retractions, right? So if, if you're a McKenzoid out there, then there's all these different things. There's chin retraction with extension, there's rotation-based exercises and lateral flexion-based exercises. It's finding an exercise, finding a range of motion that desensitizes what you're feeling, it decreases the pain and doing it repetitively and to your current end range. So not pushing past, but going as far as you can without reproducing that pain and doing that for a hundred to 150 reps. So, and before I go further, this is not supposed to be specific medical advice. I haven't diagnosed you, da, 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 the whole, the whole nine yards. This is for the clinicians out there or for the coaches and it's all educational. I just don't want to get sued, but moving on. Oh, we don't want to get sued. Alex was giving me a look. <laughs> Alex doesn't want to get sued for my stupid ass. That's uh, that's my number one concern in this company right now. That's just gonna. That's not just a right now concern. That's gonna be a forever concern. Yeah, I know. I know. Um, but so moving on. So that's that's the first step. You can do your repetitive end range loading techniques. That's gonna be your chin retractions, your chin or your neck rotations. Then moving on to if it is a neurodynamic case. So if it's a neurodynamic case, which means that there's the nerve isn't getting blood flow or it got overtensioned or it just isn't sliding right through the system, then we can look to do the popular term is nerve flossing. The technical term are going to be either tensioners or sliders. Um, as well as look for a position of relief. So what we look for in this position of relief is we're going to find a way that your shoulder is going, that the pain goes away. For the most part, there's a really, really easy thing that you can do is you lift up the shoulder blade on the same side, and then you lean your head away from that shoulder blade. So if it's my right shoulder that I feel the stinger in, I ironically enough, shrug my trap up to detension the shoulder, to detension the nervous system. So that takes pressure off the brachial plexus or the neurovascular bundle of your shoulder coming from the neck. And then if you lean away, that opens up where the nerve leaves the spine and it gives it more space to breathe. So that alone, if it's anything in the shoulder is going to decrease tension on the system, which should take away if it's a tension-based issue, it should take away the symptoms that you're feeling. 
So, and then on top of that, we have our sliders, our flossing, our gliders, our tensioners, double-ended, single-ended. There's all these different phrases, but you want to look at, there's, there's a couple, there's three that you got your median radial ulnar, um, then three main nerves that come from the brachial plexus all the way down the arm. Um, and you can do these different flossing or gliding or tensioning techniques based around the recreation of symptoms. And this isn't something that you should just do at random. This, this in specific for all this stuff, you should get assessed. Like if you got a stinger, go get checked out. It's dumb not to, but this in particular, don't just start nerve gliding out of nowhere. I see a bunch of people, they warm up with sciatic nerve glides, like before a leg day and they don't realize they have an active disc herniation. They were like, Whoa, my back hurts after that. Guess what? It's probably because you just did a double ended tensioner on your sciatic nerve before you then lifted heavy weight with a rounded back because your form sucks too. Like it's, it's not just your deadlift. It's your inability to understand what's going on with the nervous system. Well, it's the inability to prepare your body specifically for your specific task. I think that's one of our biggest rants about warming up is it's not a, the adequate specific preparation is not there. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's not targeted to you. You're doing a general approach for a specific body. Yeah. Essentially. Uh, yeah. And that's one of my biggest pet peeves in strength and conditioning world. And again, I'm kind of going away from a lot of the injury based in the healthcare stuff because that's Austin's lane, but, um, in the strength and conditioning world, that's one of my biggest things. We take a prehab movement or a corrective movement that we has worked well for us personally, or worked well for this ex athlete or whatever. And then all of a sudden it's part of our warm up for everybody, everywhere, period. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, you know, not every single practice should start with ankle mobility. Not every single, um, lifting session needs to start with cat cows. Like it's just, there's a, a fine line there where maybe it's appropriate for this person, but it's not appropriate for the whole team every time. Right. Well, and that's the, you, you hit the nail on the head. It's whole team is the, is the phrase right there. Right. Yeah. So like when you're programming a warm up, and I don't want to make this all about warm ups. when you're programming a warm up for a team versus an individual, there's a difference, right? Well, any, you corrective, gotta get, any corrective, right, right. Corrective should be specific, but if yeah. you got to do it in a whole team setting, then you got to give the b- biggest bang for your buck with the entire team. But that also, you need to do an assessment on your whole team. So you know what the whole team needs. <laughs> you don't Amen. just throw random hips, hip prep. If for whatever reason, I haven't seen it yet, but for whatever reason, your, your team is extremely strong through the hips and they move well, which again is mostly, mostly <laughs> a myth. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it doesn't make sense to do hip mobility. If everybody on your team has full rotation both ways, which again, doesn't happen, but still, um, mm-hmm. but going back to the stingers and, and the nerve glides and tensioners, make sure that you're getting assessed, know which one to do, which one of the three, and there's more than three, but I'm trying to keep it basic. Um, and if you do feel like a hotness, if you feel heat, you feel zingers, or if you feel anything that's like electric in nature, please get that assessed. I'm not saying that to help all my healthcare workers out. Uh, I'm saying that in, in general, that those three things, those three symptoms tell me immediately that there's probably a nervous component to it, if not completely nervous system. And those are the things that are going to hinder your career. Those are the ones that typically get overlooked. Those are the ones that typically keep you out longer than anything else, if not managed properly. They they get irritated further and further very fast. So while you aren't fragile, if you got if you got zingers, you got electricity, or you got burning sensations, please go get those looked at by a qualified healthcare professional, whether it be PT, AT, Cairo, MD. I mean. MDs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, MD. <laughs> no, look, I love I love medical doctors. 
I do. I, I, I'm not like a lot of Kairos are like, Oh, like, uh, allopathic medicine doesn't work. That's bullshit. There's a, there's a fucking reason, but this isn't a physiologic, this isn't a physiologic complaint. And I tend to lean more towards PTs and Kairos for a neuromusculoskeletal complaint yep. than, than a medical doctor, just because that's, that's our, like you, we talk about lanes a lot while there are some lanes that, that kind of blend like stingers are my lane. Like that, yeah. that's what I do best. That's what I, that's what I crush. And I know that they're probably just going to give them some sort of pill. No, I, uh, I just thought your hesitation was funny. I, I, I agree with what you just said, but I thought the hesitation was pretty funny. I, uh, I was about to say it. And then I thought, I'm like, do I really want them to just go get some sort of pain blocker? And I'm like, yeah. that's not going to do a whole bunch. I feel it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, but yeah, so from the healthcare side, those are two very, very common complaints in the shoulder that shouldn't be that complicated. People make them more complicated than they have to be. It's just teasing out what's causing the clicking or what's causing the stinging and trying to work with that for you, for your individual body, what works best. Yep. On the healthcare side of things, I think that's a smash up job, Austin. I don't know that I have anything to add on that. On that. Um I, you just let me rant, bro. Just, that's that's just what put, that's just what happened. Yes, I did. Put a put a mic in front of my face and let me talk. Yeah, not only is he a legal liability, he's a PR liability for our company as well. So <laughs> we'll we'll keep watch on that. But uh, what I wanted to uh, kind of yes, finish up on, or what I wanted to um, add in here, is some quote unquote like smarter ways for training in the shoulder. Um, what I what I see a lot and. Not that, again, not that these are the bad things and athletes are fragile or whatever, but I see a lot of barbell bench pressing, barbell overhead pressing, handstand push-ups, um, kipping pull-ups. I see a lot of those things just run rampant throughout um, strength and conditioning. So I feel like it's worth mentioning and worth uh, a good service to talk about smarter ways to train the shoulders and smarter ways to get at some of those range of motion and gains. Can I just say, I don't want to cut you off and make it all about me. I fucking hate handstand push-ups. Yeah, with a, they, pa- with a passion. I, again, <laughs> performance versus you know training necessity. Um, if you're in the CrossFit Games and you have handstand push-ups as part of your competition, you probably need to do them to practice. But if you're in any other person ever, <laughs> yeah, for the say, if you're an MMA mixed martial artist, I don't know how much handstand push-ups are benefiting you. Yeah. All right, continue. Sorry, I had to say that. Yeah. No. Uh, so. <laughs> In lieu of the bench press, what I think about a lot is, is simply replacing by dumbbells. I think that gives the shoulder blade a lot more freedom of, of degrees of move of degrees of freedom, but it also gives a lot more stability and um, a lot more mobility to the scapula. I like incline pressing instead of overhead pressing. We can get into a high incline or we can get into a landmine press instead of an overhead press. And again, time and place. I think bench press and barbell overhead pressing are beautiful exercises. If the athlete has the prerequisites to do them correctly and they're actually beneficial and they're not just a lot of lumbar extension and um, anterior deltoid work. So you actually do, you, you showed me one that I really like. Um, It's your med ball one and a quarter press for power development with, with, from a dead bug position. That's another fantastic way to add in like a, like a power development with a med ball, but doing a horizontal press, if you will. Absolutely. And I think again, med balls are, are great power tools and we kind of went on a ramp about med balls in our last episode, but med balls and shoulder work and chest work and, and all of that work very well in sync. 
um, which is another reason you should implement med balls into your upper body training, specifically with the shoulder. And they can be all the way from, you know, chest presses in the wall to overhead throws. Um, I'm a huge fan of that type of total body power expression from MMA fighters. Um, if we're talking about to throw the med ball, like a basket, a basket toss up into the air as high as you can. Um, but I think a lot of those type of modalities, and then if we correctly do a push up, and then we can go into like a down dog position and eventually work some overhead stability from that. A lot of people don't think about a down dog as an overhead shoulder uh, stability exercise, but that's what we can turn it into. Um, and then we can work into, you know, type of handstands and, and, and gymnastics type movements, which again, if you're interested in, you know, handstands or handstand push up type of things, take gymnastics as a cue. Gymnastics technique and form is a lot more rigorous and a lot better than just throwing up a handstand. Um, <laughs> like I'm talking about like formal gymnastics training, like they score based on how well the position looks and a lot of how well it looks is based on the um, anatomical safe approach to it. So yeah. trying to think of what else, what else can we replace in a bad shoulder training? Uh, just straight up eyes wise, T's and A's forever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> time and place, but um, you need to teach that skill of movement, not just repetition of behavior. Um, throwing, throwing somebody with a shoulder complaint on just on band work every day again is, um, you know, putting makeup on a, a face or, or just throwing Eric, well, Eric, Eric Cressy had a, a, a very good tweet that, that I liked a lot recently. And he was talking about like, he's like the number one thing I want in 2021 to not have is bullshit arm care routines. It's like, yeah, arm, arm care is, and Eric Cressy is the, I would say the leading baseball. Yeah. yeah. He's the leading baseball strength coach. He's one of the leading rotation based strength coaches in the entire world. He's one of the the figureheads, if you will. Shoulders specifically too. He gets into that yeah. a lot. Yeah. So like the, I think of for PTs, for, for healthcare, for baseball, it's Mike Reinhold for strength and conditioning for baseball. It's Eric Cressy. Those are, those are the twos. Um, but Eric had a, had a post re- or a tweet recently. And he's like, the number one thing I want out of 2021, I hope it's not there is bullshit arm care routines. He's like bullshit banded routines. I believe was the actual term. He's like <laughs> arm care and band work is awesome. If you know what you're doing and it's specifically developed for that person. Yeah. You're doing it for a purpose. You're not just blindly yeah. adhering total, total, like one size fit all band approaches and one size fit all arm care approaches. And this is actually making, I'm bringing it up because it, it's starting to make its way into MMA because it's a rotational based power sport. Mm-hmm. So people in healthcare have started treating fighters and strikers in particular kind of like baseball pitchers. So it's working its way in, which I don't think is wrong. It's very similar, but it's yeah. working its way into our sport. So I want to cut it off at the head. It's one of those things that if you develop a good arm care routine or a good shoulder care routine for your fighter, that's fantastic. But if you give that same shoulder care routine to every single fighter, that's doing them more harm than good. So it's one of those, it's, it's one of those things you can't have a generalist approach for everything. Everybody needs to get stronger. That's true for the most, for 99% of fighters need to get stronger. 99% of fighters need a little bit more power, but guess what? 99% of fighters don't need a bullshit banded shoulder like regiment. They need something that targets their specific mobility deficits or their specific stability deficits and allows them to get their biggest bang for your buck, not your least amount of energy used. Yeah. And, and a lot of the justification I see for bullshit band work is just paying any attention to it is better than not, but not all the time. You know, if, if I'm thinking about general 
shoulder mobility. Um, and I, I want to give my athlete more of that. I like, how am I going to give them more of that than they get at a jujitsu practice? Nope, how am I going to give them more of that than they do grappling? Like general mobility is most likely not the issue. It's, it's the ability to stabilize and safely get into a range of motion. Like that's, that's where we can target or identify for a specific person, what it is. Neurologic tension and motor control. Those are the two biggest that's, things that I see with. Sure. Mr. Uh, doctor is saying what I said, just a smarter term. <laughs> slightly different, but neurologic tension and motor control are the two biggest things I see with shoulders as well as hips. It's crazy that they're both free flowing joints, but it's not that you can't passively get to full end range of shoulder external internal rotation. So Camoras and Americanas, it's that your brain is telling you that that's not safe and it's not allowing you to get there. So it's, that's where our, again, I, I bring them up. I don't even use functional range a whole bunch, but I feel like I've talked about them a lot. Um, I'm bringing them up again. They do a really good, a good job with their pails and rails system for shoulder mobility, where it's training the training, the motor control and the neural, neurology, <laughs> neurologic side of everything. And it's, tra- it's training the nervous system to allow your brain to recognize that I can get to a safer range and it's forcing me further. And that's yeah. where I really, that's where I really like the pails and rails for is for the shoulder and the hip, because a lot of the times it's, it's not that you can't get there. It's that your brain won't let you get there. And that's yeah, a good way to trick it. Yeah. And it's all, yeah, it's a lack of comp, uh, competence as far as, um, achieving your active end range closer to your passive end range, right? Because passive end range, we know goes for days most times, but active end range is what will actually enhance our performance. So that's a different side of the coin, uh, not specifically what Austin is talking about pails and rails, but another benefit of them. Yeah. Oh, I think that's it, man. I think we, uh, we done did killed the shoulder. I think we did. I think that might've been our best podcast ever. You say that every podcast. I do. I do. <laughs> Always better, right? Yeah. Better every day, bro. 1%. <laughs> yeah. uh, as always, uh, <laughs> if you guys got to get in contact with us, all of our information is in the show notes. Uh, we also have our Instagram page. If you listen, give us a follow. We're trying to boost that up a little bit to, again, just like how we say, like, share, subscribe. If you like our Instagram and I follow us on Instagram, the more people we'll be able to talk to online. Um, so the more information we can get out there. So as always, this is Dr. Austin Shane. Alex Friedman, not a doctor. are out. Out.